Aloha. Good morning. My name is Matt Yusi. I'm pastor of Trinity Church Central Oahu on the beautiful Hawaiian island of Oahu. And it's my privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. Your pastor, Matt, has become a good friend over the last couple of years. And so he invited me to come and speak while I'm in town visiting my in-laws. Um, he did not tell me, however, that this is the last week there, there are two services. So interesting choice, Matt. Um, and also, is Dr. Enlow still here? Who just prayed. I did not know Dr. Enlow came here. I have to tell you, as a freshman in college, it was his historical theology class that actually opened the door for Reformed theology in my life. And so I can say, honestly, sir, I am here in part because of you. So thank you. What an honor. Um, yeah, you can clap for Dr. Enlow. That's nice. It's never a, never a bad thing. Um, the original, our passage this morning is Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have them. By way of context, the original audience of the book of Revelation was the first century Christian church under persecution and attacked from many angles. This is somewhat detailed in chapters 2 and 3 of the book, in which seven letters are written for seven churches in Asia Minor. The church, especially in the first century, was an eclectic mix, and the eclectiveness of it was Jew and Gentile. After the second century, it started to be predominantly Gentile, but in the first century, it was very, very blended, and we might say even. And as the church was both Jew and Gentile, so too were the persecutors of the church. Those of the Jewish communities who rejected Jesus of Nazareth as being the promised Messiah despised that their relatives did and would either try to pry them out of belief or shun them as if they were dead. The Gentile world, the Roman Empire, did much, much worse. Loss of property, freedom, and life were realities, not just stories that they heard about, also spoken of in chapters 2 and 3 of the book and throughout What a world it must have been where the very communities where they were desperately trying to convince to turn the people to faith in Jesus Christ, to repent and believe in him for forgiveness of sins were the ones who were devastating them. I imagine that their temptation would have been to want to withdraw from the world and and hate them. But of course, they were to love them and to leave those who refused to turn to Jesus in the hands of God. The visions of Revelation are for their comfort and assurance that the Lord Jesus is, in fact, reigning from heaven now, and he will remain as sovereign right up until the day when he returns in glory. And the book of Revelation is intimidating. It can be intimidating. I was intimidated by it, I can say honestly. And then I've had the joy of preaching through it through the past year in Hawaii. And what a blessing it has been. What a practical comfort it has been learning of these cycles of history throughout the book. Not meant to be understood kind of uh, chronologically, but thematically depicting the history of earth between the advents of Christ. That is, between his advent when he came 2,000 years ago in the flesh and his great advent At the end of history, when he returns in glory, these cycles of history and revelation depict this history from God's perspective. 
The passage that we're studying today concludes a section in Revelation marked by seven visions that kind of serve as an interlude between two sections, seven trumpets which are sounded and seven bowls of God's wrath which are poured out upon the earth. These visions, and we're concluding this section of these seven visions, are all introduced by the phrase, and I saw, or and behold, by the Apostle John. These visions include some of the most well-known passages from Revelation, such as the conflict between the serpent and the pregnant woman in the wilderness, the rise of the beasts from the sea and the land, the 144,000 faithful sealed on Mount Zion, and so on. Well, our passage today, this final word of introduction, is that of the vision of the heavenly chorus of the victorious saints over the beast and the introduction of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Now, I'm going to ask you to indulge me of a practice we have at my church, Trinity Church Central Oahu, that we stand for the reading of God's word. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word? I'll be reading Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 8 from the English Standard Version. Would you now hear God's holy word? Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke, from the glory of God and from his power and no, I'm sorry, and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we pray now that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would behold your truth, your glory. Lord, we pray that we would know our great need for your mercy that we would find that great need in Christ and him alone. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please have a seat. When I was a uh, junior in college and it was time for Christmas break, it was my task to find a ride home. My school was in Columbia, South Carolina, and my home was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's about a 600-mile trek, which if driven straight through, took around 11 or 12 hours. Now, normally, I would ride home with a close friend who was from the area, but that wasn't an option this particular Christmas. And so I was grateful to be able to find a, a girl, a classmate, who was heading to that general area. And so, along with another classmate, another guy, and another girl, we made plans to drive right after dinner, which was right after our last final exam, all the way through the night. 
Of the four of us, I was certainly the most worldly wise and automobile care savvy, which if you knew anything about me now is terrifying. I'm the guy who thinks that I'm caring for my car when I fill it up with gas, so you can imagine what it was like 20 years ago. I feared this fact would come into importance when shortly after leaving, the driver of a car, who I'm obliged to say is a very nice and wonderful girl, said that earlier that day she had gotten ready for the trip by filling the tires up with air. Inquisitively, I asked, did you fill it to like 32 PSI, which I amazingly knew was the general standard, 32 pounds of pressure per square inch. And she said, no, I just filled them up until they stopped. At that point, just down the street from our college, down the hill, I said, let's pull into the gas station so I can check. And I wish I had a picture of my face now. When I tested them and found that all four tires were inflated to somewhere between 70 and 90 pounds per square inch. I feared that even though I was able to remedy the problem, that this fact may come into play in our trek. Sure enough, somewhere along I-95 in the middle of North Carolina, a tire blew out, waking me up from a deep sleep. We unloaded everything that was packed in the trunk, and it was I who was looked upon to fix the mess. Now, I must tell you, I take no pride in this whatsoever. For the other three in my my party consisted of a freshman girl, a missionary kid who grew up in Austria, and a girl who thought you were supposed to fill up tires with air until you could fill them no more. I put the donut on, which I think I did correctly, but a few miles down the road, that burst as well. Well, to make a long story somewhat short, we ended up sleeping on the floor of a rest stop until morning on an unusually freezing, below freezing, um, North Carolina evening. And I can still remember the rush of cold air that would blow in and hit my bones whenever someone would come into the rest stop because we were just laying on the floor between the bathrooms. At that point in my life, 20 years ago, it was probably the most miserable night of my life. And yet, I eventually got home. And I saw my mother, who I loved, saw my sisters, who I love. And after a long nap, I realized I had a great story to share. Shook my head and laughed about it because I knew it was over. And the comfort of home made it all go away. Well, these visions of the book of Revelation are meant to have a similar impact upon us. There are promises throughout the book about pain that is coming. Promises from God to his people. Greater and greater persecution for the church. There are also promises about a salvation that will be revealed when we are at last with the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that time, everything will be right. Not only that, but we'll be able to look back at our lives and realize that Christ has been on the throne all the way along as he's depicted in Revelation to be. And he was actually as king, as sovereign, using our pain along with our joys in order to ready us to be with him forever. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. My mother died of cancer in 2006, and what I wouldn't give to be able to spend one more moment with her, how many of those nights would I be willing to endure in order to just have a moment with her? Well, friends, when Christ returns with triumph at the end of history, it will be so much better than that blessed thought. 
we will see the Lord and be with him forever. We will behold his glory and be with his people and live with his in his presence forever and ever and ever. As Tolkien wrote in Lord of the Rings, everything sad will become un, untrue. This is meant to be the promise and picture we're gripped with when we study this amazing concluding book in God's holy word. And we get in our passage a distinct vantage point of it that is very characteristic of it. We get a view of God's justice and his wrath and his protection. The Lord has promised to fight for his people and will administer justice on the nation. This wrath, however, will never be tasted by his people because he is on their side and gives them his salvation. This is our outline. If you're a note taker, we see these two truths depicted for us in this passage. The all-sufficient salvation of the Lamb and the all-sufficient wrath of the Lamb. First, the salvation of the Lamb. In verse 2, we read, the Apostle John write, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this imagery in Revelation. When John saw God seated on his throne, and he would later see the Lamb, who was once slain but now standing next to the throne, ready to take the scroll from his hand and break the seven seals so that his plan for history could unfold according to his purpose and will, We see the sea, S-E-A, for the first time. This is Revelation chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. But in our passage, there's another feature of this sea of glass. It is mingled with fire. It's an important detail. And its meaning becomes plain in the next verse. When the song of Moses is mentioned, we are meant to revisit the scene of the crossing of the Red Sea by the people of Israel at the hand of God. Now, according to a Jew, to Jewish biblical interpretive tradition, the way the Lord parted the Red Sea was to make it a sea of glass as the people of Israel, having been redeemed by the firstborn blood of the Lamb and spared the plague of the firstborn, which claimed every person and every animal's firstborn son in Egypt, marched through the midst of it. Now, looking back in the Old Testament, we understand that the salvation, the redemption of God in the Exodus was the Old Testament prototypical pattern of God's salvation And it was returned to again and again in Scripture by the psalmists and by the prophets in order to show God's people his power and his resolve to enter history again to do it. It was there that the Lord entered history in a unique way in order to save his people. This is what the Lord instructed Moses in Exodus chapter 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. See it? Salvation. Judgment. This same God would enter history once again when the eternal son put on flesh and lived and died. And by his sacrifice, his firstborn son sacrifice, all of his people were truly redeemed for the Lord's own possession. 
This new exodus adds to the song of God's people that we see here. Just as the prophet Moses sang a song of victory following that first redemption here, the saints in heaven sing the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the song of the Lamb. Look at verses 3 and 4 again with me, please. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Rather than the words of Moses' song, which are recorded for us in Exodus chapter 15, and repeated in Deuteronomy 32, what we have here being represented as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb is sort of a, a, patch, a patchwork quilt of praises pieced together from all over the Old Testament, all of which draw our attention to the praise of God and his Christ. I'm going to read a few of them. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, Deuteronomy 10:17. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. God of faithfulness and without iniquity, Deuteronomy 32, 4. King of the nations, who will not fear and glorify your name, Jeremiah 10, 7. You alone are holy and all the nations will come and worship before you, Psalm 86, 9. And finally, your righteous acts have been revealed, Psalm 98, 2. All put together here to just begin the praises of him who not only made the world, but who entered history in order to save his people fully and finally. The point of all of the Old Testament put together as being the salvation of the Lamb of God and the judgment he brings on his enemies. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were called upon in the face of either the dread of other nations who wanted to destroy them, or in the face of their own sinful heart's temptation to turn to the practices of those nations to remember the Exodus. It's as if the Lord's repeated message in the Old Testament was this. Don't you know who the Lord is? He is the everlasting God. He destroyed the army of the most powerful nation on earth and in him is incomparable joy Compared to any lust of the flesh, return to him, find your all in him, remember the Lord. The same is true for us when we're, when we're faced with similar temptations. Perhaps, and we praise God for this, we don't fear uh, armies coming in and destroying us, the church, but we are so familiar with the temptations of the flesh, aren't we? We're so familiar with the temptations to to dull down our convictions in order to fit in with the world. It's as if the Lord is saying to us here, don't you know know that the Lord Jesus Christ is your God and Savior? He died for you. So great is his love. His righteousness is yours by faith. Find your all in him. Nothing else can satisfy like the living waters he offers. Hide in him. Rest in him. The question for us in reading this is what functions as our song. What are the things that you look toward in hope in order to gain comfort from in the present? Is it finishing school? Is it having a family? Is it advancing your career? Is that the point in history to which you look in order to give you hope today? 
right? All these things are good and can be very good and blessings from God, but that's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in what God has promised to do and the salvation he will bring to its completion in Christ Jesus. Christian, fix your heart on such things, the all-sufficient salvation of the Lamb. Secondly, we see here the all-sufficient wrath of the Lamb. The seven plagues introduced in our passage in verse 1 and then picked back up in verse 5 are said to be contained in the seven bowls of God's wrath. Now, this word plague means a blow or a wound. It's used throughout Acts and by the Apostle Paul to describe what was happening to Christians at the hands of their persecutors. For example, in 2 Corinthians 6 and 11, Paul lists beatings as befalling the servants of God. That word beatings is the same word as plague here. He says that he himself has experienced countless beatings, countless plagues, and often near death at the hands of sinners. And so there's a contrast that's plain in view of the entire New Testament, and that is this. Those who follow Christ in this world will receive the plagues of man. Those who do not will face the plagues of God. And more, you can have the wrath of man now while hiding in Christ who protects you from ultimate harm or you can have the wrath of Christ while hiding in your sins now when the end of history comes. This hiding in Christ while receiving the wrath of man now is actually accompanied, as we said earlier, with promises that God amazingly and we would say incomprehensibly is using those plagues of man in this world in order to ready us for his presence, in order to grow us, that he is able to use our suffering for good. This means that suffering in this life, in any form, is not an unfortunate consequence of living in between the advents of Jesus, but it is a purposeful tool of God for his people. That is, that God is shaping us by it. It is in his fire in which he forges us. He promises to be with us by his spirit as we walk through the fire, which cannot ultimately hurt us. So, This entire chapter is meant to make us think of that time in redemptive history between the exodus from Egypt and the entrance into the promised land. You can see the themes throughout the passage. There's the Red Sea. There are, of course, the plagues which were visited upon Egypt prior to the exodus. And here we see the tent of witness opened up in verse 5 and judgment upon the nations that pour out from it. Backing up again. God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, and it was set up wherever they rested. It was the precursor of the temple in Jerusalem, the place where the glory of the Lord in the form of the pillar of cloud would descend. And in our verse 8, the tent is described as being filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. This is meant to make us think of of the tabernacle and the glory, the Shekinah glory of God that rested upon it. And because of the sins of God's people in the Old Testament, there were very specific regulations about the tent of meeting 
as it was called. They were given to protect God's people from his holiness. They were given to protect God's people from pure justice, from his awesome power to enact it, because his holiness required holiness. His holiness required perfect justice. And in order for his people to survive back then, there were these sacrifices instructed to be offered in order to be a symbol and a type of what would come, the sacrifice that would forever remove us from his wrath, that would forever clothe us in righteousness so we could be in the presence of God forever. And that tabernacle, which is made plain in the book of Hebrews, was patterned after a heavenly temple or a heavenly tent. And it is here that it's that it is said the plagues of God proceed from. This is Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sorry, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption is from that temple that the plagues of God proceed from. Now, in light of this, when you look at the world and wonder, as we all do, how so much sin can be allowed when there is a holy God in heaven dwelling in his temple, revelation would convince you that it will not always be so, that a time is coming when the wrath of the Lamb will be brought to its completion. This is what is meant by the word finished. In verses 1 and verse 8, the bookends of the passage, all sins will be paid for, all wrath enacted and completed. And that day is coming, friends, as surely as today came. There's a reality living in this world as it is presently. We wait, we cry out, and we long for God to come and make things right. But he has not done so. Yet, the book of Revelation should say God through the book of Revelation would have us see that though that reality of waiting and longing is all that any of us have ever known every second of our lives, that that reality is but a temporary one, that it it will one day be a memory and history will begin anew. A time is coming when no one will wonder what is God doing in this or why is God allowing this or when will God put an end to this slavery, abortion, oppression, wars, diseases, poverty, our own proclivity to sin, to doubt. All of it will end. And God will end them at once in a moment and then never again for eternity will even a hint of them exist. Why? Because the wrath of the Lamb will be sufficient for them all. This uh, finishing of the wrath of God, the bookends of our passage, verse 1 and verse 8, harkens back to another one that came before this finishing at the end of history. There was one time and one time only when the bare, undiluted, perfect, glorious wrath of God was experienced to its fullness. It was when, as this same apostle John, who received this revelation, recorded in the 19th chapter of his gospel account, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, 
hung on his cross, bowed his head, gave up his spirit, and said, it is finished. Same word for finished. Same perfect wrath. But then drank entirely by Jesus. Now here's the question for us. How do you get this salvation and not receive the punishment you deserve? How do you hide in that expression, real expression of the wrath of God poured out perfectly and not in the one that comes at the end of history? It is by hiding in Jesus, friends. That's all. Hiding in him. How do you hide in him? You cannot buy your way under his care. This salvation is a free gift. You must only believe that you need it and believe that he paid it for you. Repent and believe. Repent and have faith. I'm going to close with a quote from J.C. Ryle, the great bishop of Liverpool, that I think sums this up well. I think it is just possible that some of you may be ashamed of repentance. I do beseech you to cast away such shame forever. Never be ashamed of repentance toward God. Of sin, you might be ashamed of lying, swearing, drunkenness. Of these, a man ought to be ashamed. But of repentance, of prayer, of faith in Christ, of seeking God, of caring for the soul, never, never, so long as you live, never be ashamed of such things as these. I think it's just possible that some of you are afraid to repent. You think you are so bad and so unworthy that Christ will never have you. I do beseech you once more to cast away such fear forever. Never, never be afraid to repent. The Lord Jesus Christ is very gracious. He will not break the bruised reed nor quench the smoking flax. Fear not to draw to him. There's a confessional ready for you. You need none made by man. The throne of grace is your confessional. There is a priest ready for you. You need no ordained man, no priest, no bishop, no minister to stand between you and God. The Lord Jesus is the true high priest. None is so wise. None is so loving as he. None but he can give you absolution and send you away with a light heart and in perfect peace. Oh, take the invitation I bring you. Fear nothing. Arise this day and flee to him. Go to Christ and repent this night without delay. Friend, cast your fears and shame onto Christ who died to bear them all. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us so full a salvation. We thank you that you have spoken plainly what we are to expect in this world. We thank you that you do not depend upon our righteousness in order to receive us, but you rather depend on the righteousness of your Holy Son, which has been imputed to us, given to us, which clothes us to make us worthy, to make us fit. Oh Lord, I thank you for the words that we sung this morning in the great ancient hymn. That those who hide in Christ, that when by grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Oh Lord, help us to hide in him by your spirit, by your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.